Episode of Black Op Radio. In this episode, we are speaking to researcher Johnny Cairns from Edinburgh, Scotland. Hello. How you doing, Len? Good. Pleased that you could make time to talk to me today. I think uh, you were in Dallas, and uh, it was the 60th anniversary, just like, uh, well, not even a month ago, but a little while ago, just a couple of weeks. And I thought I'd maybe get your impressions of someone from overseas coming to check out the different conferences and whatever, and then also talk about your latest article. Yeah, sure. So I love the United States. It's a great country. It's a long travel, but it's when you get to Dallas and when you see Dealey Plaza again, I went in 2018 and to just to see it again and it's just instantly recognizable and when you turn that corner from when you turn the corner from Maine on Houston and you see the depository just there you get you get goosebumps and yeah it was it was it was a great it was a great trip we've done so much from uh, the guys all at Dealey Plaza UK I think there was about six or seven of us that went over and yeah it was a fantastic time we were in Dallas for a little over a week and then I flew to Washington to uh, do all the Kennedy stuff in Washington, go to Arlington National Cemetery and St. Matthew's Cathedral. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was a great time. What were some of the people that you got to meet that we would know? So I met, uh, well, I met Robert Groden again at Camp Easy's when we arrived on the 16th. I met Robert again and all the guys for Dealey Plaza UK were there set from our secretary Neil, he was uh, he was not too well, unfortunately. But Chuck O'Celli was there. It was good to meet Chuck. Brooks LaPlanck was there as well. And yeah, there was there's all sorts of researchers, and it was it was good to kind of you know connect with them and meet them for the first time. And it was it was really good. But I was so tired. Like I'd been up for about twenty three hours by the point I'd actually went to my bed that night. So, uh, but it was fantastic. And I met Paul Blur at Lancer. Paul's a great guy. Had a real good laugh with Paul, and he's a part Scottish as well, so we really hit it off. And he done a great talk on his latest book with Jim called Chokeholds, which I'm currently reading at the minute. It's fantastic. Really recommend it. Met Dick Russell. I met just so many people. Gary Shaw. Gary Shaw's a great guy. Met him. Met Chris Gallup. Went out for uh, for dinner with Chris Gallup and his good lady and. Yeah, it was it was just fantastic. It was so it was so overwhelming. We had so much to do. I went from arriving on the Thursday to Campeses, and on the Friday 
I went to Dealey Plaza, then went up to the sixth floor, and then straight away right out to Irvine to the to, to tour the Ruth Payne House. And that was really good because when I got there, I was with two other guys from the UK, and we got there, and it was just us taking a tour. It was a pri- it was all it was like a private tour, and the guy who ran the tour was super nice, really helpful guy, and we just basically got the running the pain house to ourselves you know there was a man liquor in the in the garage as well an actual man liquor so got to uh, got to pick that up and see what that's like really heavy the first thing that struck me was what a piece of junk but then it was wow this is actually quite a heavy rifle you know piece of equipment so then from there strikes me like the the pain's garage i think in our episodes we called it the gift that keeps giving well yeah whenever you need something just go in the garage you find it there (laughs) it's kind of like pandora's box right i mean it's uh, stuff keeps on coming out it's not like a magician's hat you know you know it's never ending it's a bottomless pit of of goodies it's a gold mine and so that was quite interesting. In fact, when I got there, my first thought was, you know, this is probably the only time a man like Carcano has actually been in this garage. But yeah, the guy was really nice. The guy was really nice who took us round. Highly recommend going round. Yeah, that was that was fantastic. And then from there, I went over to Lancer and met some really interesting people. Of course, Paul and Dick Russell and Gary Shaw. But Monica Perez, she's a really nice woman. She's the daughter of of Marita Lorenz, and she was really she was really cool. She gave a fantastic presentation. You know, it was good to to speak to so many different people. I presented myself when I was at Lancer on the Saturday, and uh, yeah, I was quite nervous beforehand. But yeah, I mean, it was it's the first time I've ever actually done a conference, you know. And it was like there was people speaking all the time. Never there was no break in the proceedings. It was just constant speakers some in person some virtual and when you leave the conference there's people there selling their books different people you could chat to i met jeff meek as well and his good lady and jeff's a, a really good researcher and i bought two of his books as well so that was good met larry hancock larry hancock's a really nice guy again a very knowledgeable researcher and it was just great to to hear these people speak about this case it was it's something I'll never forget, actually. And, um, yeah, I, I never went to the other conference. I never got the chance to go to the other conference. Because I was in Dallas for such a limited time, I, I, I want, I'd done the conference on the Friday and on the Saturday, and then the rest of the time I was just doing the sightseeing, you know. But also I got access, we got access to the old city hall where Oswald was questioned and, and murdered. So we got access to that. I was inside of his cell where he was kept on the top floor. They've got an exhibit in the old city hall. It's not open to the public, but they've spent quite a bit of money on it. But, you know, it's fallen the party line that Oswald is, is, is the murderer of Officer Tippett and President Kennedy, which is unfortunate. But it's really interesting to see. It's quite funny when you go from the lift where he gets led out Oswald gets led out with Lavelle and Graves and they do that walk through the door into the into the basement. The, the, the exhibit that's there now, it stops just before where Ruby shoots him and there's just two windows either side of this TV screen and you can look out the windows for a split second 
but you can't actually get to the point where Oswald is killed. But you can get really close to it. And that was quite surreal and it was it was quite sad also, you know, a man lost his life here and yeah, it was but it was a good it was a good exhibit. It was it was it was pretty strange, you know, to be led through the halls where Oswald's saying, I'm just a patsy and I emphatically deny these charges and all the thing all the footage that you've ever seen of Oswald, you know, he walked through the halls. And to me that was that was quite surreal. Was in Fritz's office as well. So yeah, I'd done so much stuff. It was actually overwhelming at the time how much stuff that we did. Spent so much time in Daly Plaza. And yeah, 1026 North Beckley. I'd done a tour with fellow researcher from Scotland, Scott Reid. And we'd done, we went up to the Walker House in Scots, uh, an expert on the Walker shooting. He's, He's written various articles regarding the case at Kennedy's and King. And it was actually good to get his perspective of it and, you know, to be where the Walker shooting happened. And it's quite nice. It's a really nice house where you used to stay. It's up in Turtle Creek. And it's really, Turtle Creek, I can't remember the address, but it's such a nice area. And you go up this side of the house, it's like a, there's like a ramp that leads you up. And at the, t- at the time it was a car park and there was a church over there. And the alleyway still exists today where the, the the shooting occurred. So it was good to see all of that. And yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Dallas yourself, Len, but the first thing that strikes you about Dealey Plaza is just how small it is, right? That's what everybody says. Yeah, no, I, I haven't been there. I think that the time that really intrigued me was around the 50th. And then the city really had a clamp down that they they didn't want people there you had to apply you know so homeland security get cleared you couldn't wear a t-shirt that had anything to do with the jfk's assassination i think people listening to black op radio the whole year before got to hear john judge arguing like with the mayor why they should be even allowed to have their moment of silence there in the grassy knoll it was just and i thought you know for a tourism dollar or whatever. The city doesn't want me there. The state doesn't want me. And the thing is, if Lee Oswald didn't do it, then I you kind of step back and go, well, really, there, there should be some other investigation going on to the people who planned it. Because as, you know, he says he was set up as a patsy then. So who are these other guys? And, you know, I traveled an awful lot going back and forth to visit Colonel Fletcher Prody in Alexandria, Virginia, and went other places. I did go to the 50th with uh, Mark DeVolk from Dealey Plaza UK too mm-hmm. and, and, and other people and you know there was about 450 maybe 500 people there so that that was very good and I didn't go this year to the 60th but um, I'd already I mean, I've been to several smaller ones you know uh, in San Francisco and other places and uh, the first one I went to was Encinitas but um, one of the things is you you see these conferences and there are one after another speakers, and as a matter of fact, they would be overlapping, where in one room someone would be speaking and someone else. I remember Mark saying, look, I'll go here, I'll make notes and that, and you go to that one, and we had to split up which ones we were going to, right? Yeah, you could also kind of be regimented, you know, and drilled. You, you, I, I like a speaker at this conference at 2 o'clock, but I like the guy at 3 at this one, you know, so you've got to plan it. Yeah. I mean, some guys did, some guys did, Um Neil, who who is our secretary in Daily Plaza UK, he went to the Ricky White talk at this uh, Project JFK conference, which was at 
I don't think it was that far from the Lorenzo where the Lancer one was being held. But people people kind of dropped in and out. And it was quite, it, it was really interesting just to hear so many different people's perspectives on this case. And so many people coming from all over the world to hear these people talk as well. And just it's just fascinating. You know, we've done a tour. We've done a tour through Dealey Plaza. We recreated some of the the motorcade, JFK's motorcade, starting from Main Street. And Robin Brown, we hired him as a... Because he's got the Lincoln, the replica Lincoln. And it's not obviously not as big as the original because the original was modified for the jump seats. But to be in that Lincoln and to be going down Main Street and you take that turn from Houston, um, from Main onto Houston and then Houston onto Elm and he slows it down and there were so many people in the plaza and they kind of just stopped and watched as this Lincoln goes down Dealey Plaza, you know, and it's like kind of recreating history in a way. And it was fantastic. We had, I think, a group of eight and the four that wasn't in the limo, they were strategically around Dealey Plaza taking videos and pictures of the experience. And then um, when the other four went, we'd done the exact same thing. And it was just great. We've got footage of of us, you know, from the Mary Mormon position, from Zapruder's pedestal, from the triple up. Uh, overpass and from behind the knoll just footage of this linking coming down and it's pretty surreal when you when you when you look at it you know and it also you have this kind of overriding sense of sadness as well because when i was sitting i had won a coin toss with scott reed and i i got to sit in the kennedy seat and when i was in the limo the first thing that struck me was i've got nowhere to go I'm I'm trapped in here, you know, and that was it. Been the exact same men, even worse because the the jump seat with a restricted even more space, and yeah, I, I, the the thing that kind of got me was as soon as he done that turn was, as soon as he turns on Elm Street, he was dead. There was they had nowhere to go. He was a sitting duck. Mm. That's 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 the thing that I took away from it. It was that overriding sense of sadness that what happened to a lot of people it's you know you go into Dealey Plaza and you see the X's on the ground and people are going into the middle posing smiling you know for for pictures etc and I just I, I, I just I just would never do that I just that's I just there's, there's over this great yeah. sense of one of the greatest men of the 20th century Possibly could have been one of the greatest, if not the greatest president, if he had been allowed to carry on to a second term. This is where his life ended. And not only that, it was it was a watershed moment for what was to come for the 1960s and the 70s, you know, with Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Bobby Kennedy, Watergate. This is where it all started from, was Dealey Plaza and what happened to him. And yeah, it was just really sad. It was really sad. And but yeah, it was it was it was a fantastic it was a fantastic yeah, it, trip w- w- over there. It, and it's a kind of a twofold. When I reflect on it, it's not only did we lose Kennedy, and like you say, just a great man, a knowledgeable man, you know, a real president. It's the after 
shock of the intelligence community did this. They they did it and got away with it. They ran the Warren Commission. Then they did it again for Martin, you know, well, Martin King and Bobby Kennedy and, and Malcolm X. I, I just watched a documentary part one of it. It's uh, called uh, The Four Who Died Trying. Yeah, I've watched it. I've right, watched and it, 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 part, yeah. it kind of brings home the sadness of it. The war machine just wants to keep making America to be a war an industrialized military complex. They'll they'll just kill anyone in their way. Yeah, I mean, when I was watching Four Who Died Trying, the first thing that kind of struck me was the personal, how personal it was. You know, to 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 us, to us as outsiders, people like John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King, etc., they're figures, they're great men, and but they're figures of history. When you see Martin Luther King's family on there and Malcolm X's family and the Kennedys on there, and you hear them talking about their father, and uh, you, you, you can feel just how personal it all is, their murders were. And I think it's, isn't it Martin Luther King's son and his daughter, they both say, oh yeah, we knew it was a conspiracy to kill him. And you, you just, you get that sense of, wow, you know, like, imagine living with that, you know, that the country that you, the elements of an intelligence community did this to their father. It's just, it's just so sad. And I, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, I thought the prologue was really good. Really looking forward to the the second part as well. And another another documentary I've watched since I've been back is the the what the doctor saw. I thought that was really interesting. You know, I thought that was a really interesting documentary. And anybody that has any doubts about the condition of President Kennedy's wounds just need to watch what the doctor saw. They're in unanimous agreement, of course. But yeah, it was. Uh, it, listen, there was a. There's a. Have you seen what the doctors saw? No, I haven't yet. All oh, right. Okay. So there's there's one bit I, I've just got to 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 mention it. They're all the doctors at the end of the the documentary. They're all in this. It looks like a studio, and it must have been a few years ago because Robert McClelland is there, and they're all talking about the wounds. And Dr. McClellan's talking about the cerebellum, which he saw dripping onto the cart. And I can't remember the guy's name. Is the He was the pathologist for New York, and he was heavily involved with the ARRB. He comes on the... He comes on the... Uh, Michael Bodden. He comes on the screen and says, no, he's wrong. He's, he's, he's wrong. There was no cerebellum dropping onto the cart, and he couldn't possibly have seen that, etc. Right, and then it then kicks to another bit of footage, and it's this guy who also worked for the ARRB, and he's talking about the Dallas doctors. You know, didn't really see the wounds; they weren't really paying any attention to the condition of the presidents. You know, the wounds, etc. They were just preoccupied with saving his life. So he's trying to dismiss all these recollections, and it kind of cuts from that video to to the room again, and they're all laughing. And uh, one of the doctors says, is that guy an anthropologist or something? And they're all laughing about it. And then just like that, the doctor turns around and says, well, we were there. He wasn't. And to me, that sums it up. You know, these people were there. People like Baden, etc. They weren't there. They never seen the wounds at all. So 
yeah, it's a very good documentary. I highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. Okay, good. Now, one reason I wanted to uh, have you on again is to promote your writing at Kennedy's and King. And I think the last one that I saw is part five of six, the rifle and ammunition. Is that correct? Yeah, so that's the um, that's part five. All the parts are up now on Kennedy's and King. And, you know, I've got a lot to thank Jim DiEugenio for. He gave me a platform to to showcase my work. And it's the best website out there on the case. And I've got a lot of respect for, for Jim. And any time anybody asks me, you know, Who's your who's your favourite researcher? I always say Jim DiGenio, and he's the most knowledgeable person on the case. And he, yeah, he's a great guy, and I got a lot a lot to be thankful to him for allowing me to showcase my work on it. And it took a lot of hard work. I mean, <laughs> when I sent the article to Jim, I think it was like 147 pages long, and. <laughs> I can just imagine his reaction when he saw that. But um, he persevered with it. And the guy, Raul, who who edited it as well for the website, I got a lot to thank him for because it was must have been painstaking when he seen the length of this thing. But I thought it was worthwhile. I thought it was a worthwhile thing to do. And I just want people to, you know, know that there is a, there's an argument, there's a counter-argument to the Warren Commission and you know that's not even the last official word on this case from the American government you know the last official word is that it was a conspiracy that killed the president but people that advocate for a lone nut they're, they're stuck in 1964 and Paul Blotom said that to me and it's resonated with me you know he says these people are all stuck in 1964 we know so much since the Warren Commission and I mean how, like just under half of the commissioners themselves didn't believe it. So people like Russell, Boggs and Cooper never believed the single bullet theory. So, and that's what I think is good about chokeholds because Paul, what Paul's basically makes a list of all these people who were involved in this investigation who basically didn't believe it. So yeah, that's why I've yeah, done it. Like, I wanted uh, to Having flat earthers investigate, map the world, and map <laughs> the globe, you know? And they go, well, we can't go any further. We'll fall off. So they, <laughs> they can't do any research uh, because it just conflicts with their whole disposition, psyche on the case, you know? Like, if they believe Lee Oswald did it, they have to, they have to turn around and not accept evidence. Whereas if someone else has an interest in what really happened, they'll be open and to, well, if A, B, and C happened, uh, we don't have D, but we have E, you know, what you can you can put together, well, of course, of course they covered this up. When the main guy doesn't brag and say, I killed him, he says, no, I'm a patsy, right? Or, you know, say, I, I did it because, you know, so, and that's what is maybe holds me back a little bit on the investigating Lee Oswald, is that it's like, well, you know, you know, he didn't do it. And so it, it, the investigation of his family tree or all th this and that is like, but, but but he's the patsy. He didn't do it. I, 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 always, I mentioned this a few times. Somebody asked John Judge when they were down there uh, in Dealey Plaza, kind of saying, where do you think the shots came from? And he says, they came from Washington. 
Yeah, yeah, that's quite yeah. good. That, actually. So, yeah. So, so, <laughs> but you know, that's what I mean. Sometimes, if you just in, in, investigate, but here's the other side of the coin: is uh, for a researcher mm-hmm. like you, is if you say, well, if they say the Carcano did it, l- let's look into this, and you, well, it couldn't have. You can't uh, reload the gun. You can't fire. You know, it, and wait a minute. The gun, and as a matter of fact, that you're saying in evidence. It's not what he would have ordered. And then, uh, you know, look at the gun in the backyard photo. It's not even the same gun they're carrying. You know, do you start to, as someone just interested in the case says, there's so many problems here. Why should we believe this story? And so... There is so many problems. There is. There's, there's, it's an evidentiary debacle, this whole case against Oswald. Then. Yeah, no, I, I mean, even just look at the condition of the, of the man the car, C2766. I mean, it's it was it was defective, had a defective scope, it was rusty, and that specific weapon, that specific weapon, when it was t- test fired by the FBI, it took a minimum of two point three seconds to reload that specific weapon, and in one of the the points in the article, I talk about the witnesses, and in Dealey Plaza. And what their recollection of the the sequence of shots were, and I think I came up with over sixty witnesses that said that the first and the sorry the second and third shots came almost on top of each other. Oh, that'd be an impossibility with that with, with the man liquor with C two seven six six. It would be an impossibility. But I went to Neely Street uh, when I was in Dallas. I went to Neely. It's it's the fence is basically gone. It's all boarded up. Uh, I, I did have a look in the, the window, I walked up the stairs that were so rickety and uh, it was all, it was on the 22nd I went to I went to Neely and it was a beautiful morning, the 22nd was, was, a, was a beautiful day, in fact it probably would have looked like how it was in 63, you know, it was such a nice day and I went to Neely and basically, it's such a small garden and but I think they were saying there was I think someone told me that they were talking about demolishing it at one point, which would be a shame. And they were also talking about doing remodeling Dealey Plaza as well, which should never be allowed to happen. But there was talk about doing it. Right, right. Um, well, you know, I'm neutral on that because one thing, it, it's a crime scene, but then you might say, well, but for how many years later, like a hundred years later, or you know how long? The thing is, if if the case had a conclusion, like let's just say, for instance, they they found some evidence or or something that satisfied people to say, okay, well we have discovered the diary of Alan Dulles, and he wrote down exactly you know how he planned it and had everybody carry it out. There it is. Then where the backyard photos were taken isn't that important anymore, that you kind of have a satisfaction of, well, some group of people decided Kennedy had to go and that's what happened. But it, it, it is, you know, 60 years later, the CIA is still hanging on to uh, documentation about the, you know, the assassination. They don't want to release the records or release the files, whatever. The, and that, in that case, people are still, you know, saying, like, to me, I would never pay to, to the sixth floor. I'm just, every time I hear people telling you how bad it is, I'm just sickened that there's um, something called a museum. It, it would be like the Flat Earth Museum, you know? Here's how the Earth is flat. 
What was your experience in the, the sixth floor? Well, listen, the sixth floor, the sixth floor museum is very underwhelming. Okay, you only go to see the southeast corner window and to go up onto the seventh floor and you know see the view out of the, out the seventh floor. I hate to interrupt you, but just window. let me do this for a second. Imagine that where you want to go to the sixth floor, they don't want you to go there and stand and look out that window and say no way. I mean, you know. Imagine you can go to yeah. the seventh floor, but you can't go to the sixth floor. No, this you can't. Kind of and what's 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 even more kind of shocking as well is I went in 2018, and on the west side of the floor, the windows they all had these blinds down, and you couldn't move them. Okay, and when I went back again, and I went to the museum twice, I went once on the 17th, and I went once on the 22nd. I went purely on the 22nd just to say I've been there on the 22nd. And again, these blinds were down. You couldn't look out of the windows at the west the west end of the, of the sixth floor. And I just was like, why? Why can you not look out of these windows? I mean, is it because obviously people claimed, witnesses claimed to see a gunman in that, their windows? I have no idea. Or is it to stop people saying, you know, Oh, this is a better window to, to take the shot from. I've no idea. But I don't know why they do it. It's just when you go in, it's all, this is the evidence against Oswald. And they present the weak circumstantial evidence against Oswald, but they do not in any way, shape or form make aware to the unsuspecting visitor what the problems with this evidence is. They would have to go away and investigate that off their own back. And nine times out of ten, these people aren't doing that, right? So they're just believing what they're seeing in this museum. They're talking about the paper bag, they're talking about the rifle, they're talking about the shells, but they don't in any way, shape or form tell you that there is no contemporaneous photographs of that bag round that window on the 22nd. They don't tell you that the bag was tested by the FBI and found that it could in no way, shape or form be linked to the Manlika. That's through bulges or creases or oil on the back. They don't tell you that. Why? Why don't they tell you? If they were impartial, which they kind of claim that they are, they should say this is the evidence against Oswald, but this is the this is the evidence, exculpatory evidence in his defence. But they, they don't present it, and that's unfortunate. Well, when uh, Gary Mack was alive, I had many arguments with him. He They would not carry the Colonel Fled Fletcher Prouty CD-ROM in the bookstore. And there was many, many other books they would not carry. But they had, you know, Gerald Posner. They had every kind of lone, not lone assassin book. But uh, like you say, when when you start poking holes in it and, and having a contrary view, and, you know, thank goodness, like Oliver Stone did his four-hour documentary just last year, you know, The um, Destiny Betrayed. Yeah. Which says, you know, like we knew a certain amount of things in 1992, and now 30 years later, we know even more. You know, and, and you know, although all the files aren't released, we just, nobody in their right mind should believe the Warren Commission. Never mind try to wave it around as, as what happened. Yeah, I think, you know, especially over in Europe, I think if it came out tomorrow that, that President Kennedy, okay, he was assassinated by conspiracy, I think everybody would turn around, or most people would turn around and be like, well, we always knew that. It wouldn't be a great shock to anybody. You know, it's blatantly obvious it was a conspiracy. So, but, you know, it's like the evidence of a conspiracy 
the chokeholds, as, as, as Jim and Paul call it, is irrefutable proof. The head wound, the, the wound, the wound in, to the president's head, clothing, etc. These are all irrefutable proof of a conspiracy. And when you look at the evidence against Oswald, it's weak and it's circumstantial. And if he was allowed to stand trial with an impartial jury, there is no way that he would have been found guilty. I'm pretty convinced of that. However, and it's unfortunate that he never got the opportunity to stand trial. And the Dallas police and prosecution officials were so biasing the American, not just the American public, but the world against this man that I think it would have been absolutely impossible for him to get a fair trial anywhere in the United States, let alone Texas. I mean, yeah, well, the, here, even Hoover the thing is that, that. that I don't think people were ready to disbelieve the government so readily. Where now that we've had like the Gulf of Tonkin, the Vietnam War, uh, the weapons of mass destruction, like the Watergate, we've had so many things where you go, you know, wait a minute, I don't think I should trust the first story out of the government. Yeah. Do you know what's quite cool? You know what's quite cool? See, on the 22nd, we um, they showed in the Texas theater, the 22nd, they showed Rush the Judgment, and then they had this play about the Warren Commission, which I avoided. And then they showed JFK at night. And I sat where I sat where we where we sat and to watch JFK in the Texas theater was would have been the seat that Oswald was arrested in. And or it's been kind of rejigged the whole theater, but it was roughly in that area anyway. And to sit there in that theater and watch JFK it was pretty a surreal moment because you see him you see obviously Gary Oldman playing Oswald getting laid out of that theater. You see him getting arrested in, in, in the area where you're sitting. It was pretty surreal, actually. But it was the extended, uh, it was the director's cut. It's a really good film, JFK. It's a really good film. I really like the film. It's not infallible, nothing is. But listen, it's much more historical than, than Braveheart, for example, or Saving Private Ryan, you know, or The Untouchables, you know, for a, for a movie. And it takes literally license. Of course it does. Artistic license, sorry. Well, the thing of course is, it does. Me, it's a you know, movie. It tells the story of Jim Garrison yeah. going up against the government. So to me, that you would have to say, well, there's 93 things that are correct and there may be seven that are wrong. I mean, sometimes I heard people say, Jim Garrison never did have a woman on his assistant district attorney staff. <laughs> he never had a woman. It's like, you watch that movie and that's what you want to bother complaining about? Are you... What kind of petty, you know, pathetic. Yeah. Listen, Oliver Stone's a fantastic director. He's done some really good movies like Platoon. I really enjoy JFK. And one of the one of the heart-wrenching moments of JFK is, you know, is Kevin Costner's speech at the end in the courtroom. And it's really it's really heartfelt, really touching. And he talks about JFK and he talks about Oswald. Who grieves for Lee Harvey Oswald, you know? Buried in a cheap grave under the name Oswald. Nobody. And it's very true, you know, and during my talk at Lancer, I wanted, I'd done a tribute to John F. Kennedy at the end of my talk and only had an hour. And I talked about the lineups and I talked about Oswald's rights. And I just ran out of time to talk about just a small segment on Oswald. And I basically just wanted to, you know, convey that the, the Oswald's daughters, they're still living with the stigma of this thing. And, you know, they, to, to them, they are, they probably don't tell people who their dad is. He's their children or their or 
their great-grandchildren, they probably don't know they're related to Lee Harvey Oswald. And that's sad. And they're they're living with this thing. It's like a sword of Damocles hanging over their heads, you know. And a part of me really does feel sorry for Marina as well, you know. I mean, listen, Marina isn't credible on this case, but I think I do feel sorry for her because of what she went through in the media aftermath, you know. She was obviously threatened, deportation, etc. So that was, that's obviously, it's the human element of it, you know. Again, we see Oswald's murder as something in history, but that's the murder of their dad. And that must be hard for them. And it also must be hard for them knowing, because I asked Robert Groan about this, because he knew, he know, or he knew uh, June and Rachel. And they were on the set for, for JFK. And I asked them, what's their, what's, what's their opinion on, on their dad? Well, they know he's innocent, but it's just left at that, you know. And I can understand why, because they probably don't want the public. They probably don't want the publicity. They probably just want this thing to go away. And I feel sorry for them, you know. So that's what I wanted to include in my Lancer talk, kind of that human element to this case. But I just ran, I just completely ran out of time with it. Right now, do you want to give um, an overview and entice people to going to Kennedy's and King to read your article? So it is split into uh, six parts. Of course, they're all linked there. So one, two, three, four, five, six. But why don't you give an overview? I know you were on last time. I think we just talked about part one that was coming up. It's 60 points and, and 60 facts for 60 years. You Obviously, you've done something really, really similar for the 50th. 50 reasons for 50 years and I just thought you know it's the 60th anniversary it's a it's a big milestone let's just do 60 60 points okay but the more and more I wrote down the more and more I felt like I had to add two because there's such contentious points and it's such an in-depth case that I just had to keep on adding more in and adding more in and it kind of grew into this this monster <laughs> A 147-page monster. I basically, I'm using evidence contained within the, own, the Warren Commission's own volumes. I'm trying to really question, for example, would Oswald, was Oswald capable of committing this crime, planning and committing this crime? Would he put his daughters, would he put his family at risk to try and even attempt to accomplish something of this magnitude? Because successful or not successful, their lives would be put in danger and apparently Oswald was a was a loving father he cared about his girls very much and it just doesn't seem logical to me that he would do that also as well like you read the testimony of people like Francis Martello or Sam Balin or you read statements from Buell Fraser etc saying that Oswald just wasn't that type of guy you know he wasn't violent. He was he was he was very passive. I think one of the guys in New Orleans said that he was extremely shocked when Oswald was arrested because he just wasn't that type of guy. And you know, people like Adrian Alba, who worked uh, who Oswald knew in New Orleans, and he worked next to the I think he worked in a garage next to Riley Coffee. He said that he was absolutely flabbergasted that Oswald was arrested didn't think he could no way, shape or form have committed this crime because he just wasn't that type of guy. And yeah, I tried to really paint a picture of Oswald as, you know, people say that Oswald is this political fanatic who was eager to commit political assassination regardless of the consequences faced either himself or his Oh my family. God, who said that? 
No, no, that's what people do say, though. You know, that's the that's the that's the picture that Os that I've painted of Oswald. You know, um, and during the Warren Commission, uh, the Warren report, and then some of the testimony. You know, it, that's the that's what they really want to paint of Oswald is this political fanatic. But actually, Oswald was reading the testimony. He was he was in, he was quiet. I think he was introverted. He was he was only just twenty four years old. And he was passive more than he was aggressive. I know that. Listen, I know him and Marina had marital marital troubles. And, well, that's you know, strange. I've never heard of that old, before. Yeah, <laughs> and the old thing is, yeah, yeah like, the old know, thing is, you know, yeah, and you know, people go, "I used to beat Marina." Well, it's quite. If you read the testimony of George and Jean de Mornshield, both of them testify that when there was any gatherings, any parties, Marina apparently would berate. Lee to these people that Oswald had never met before, call him a call him a, a basically a, a poor lover, you know, and all this, and antagonising him, and that's that's mental torture, that's mental abuse. So both of them engaged in this 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 abuse, but I, it was just a married, a typical probably married couple in the nineteen sixties, right? But yeah, I just wanted to paint this picture of Oswald as well. This is what you're told he was, but this is actually what the testimony says he was. And uh, apparently, he, when he used to stay at the pain house, the children of the neighbourhood used to come up and he used to play with them. And he used to play with his daughters on the front lawn in the pain house. And when I was at 1026 and we had this Q&A with Pat Hall, Pat was talking about how we used to play with her and her brothers. And he used to also help her with her homework. And it was dark outside and there was a there was a light at the side of the kind of like a porch light at the side and Lee would be out there playing with her, with her brothers as well. Apparently he really had a lot of time for children. And that, so that that's the that's the type of human elements I wanted to really portray in this uh, in, in my article. And then I go through of of course the the testimony of Connolly, which in my opinion, negates the well, basically refutes the single bullet theory, um, and yeah, the, to the boxes on the on the the sixth floor. I mean, how many times have you heard people say Oswald built the the cart, the the, the blockade, you know, around this the sixth floor window? Well, in fact, if you read the testimony of Bonnie Ray Williams, it was Williams and the floor lane crew that say we moved the boxes from the west end. To the east end of the building because they were they were relaying the floor on the um, on the sixth floor during the time of the assassination and they put the boxes there. So I just all that type of stuff I just really wanted to get in there, and I th- I thought it was important and I, I went through all this stuff about Lee Bowers. I talk about the president's clothing. I talk about the paraffin test. I talk about the medical witnesses. I basically read all the testimonies of the doctors and and put the, the sections in there which talked about the president's wounds and then the last few parts is about the actual physical evidence in the case against Oswald and I'm just really trying to hit home to people how much of a sham the case against Oswald actually is and once you actually take all this evidence and go well, the paper bag is evidence of nothing. The the palm print was fraudulent. I mean, it, it never existed on the 22nd. And, 
you know, you, you, you look at CE399, you look at the chain of the possession of the shells, you look at, right, okay, where did Oswald get his, uh, his ammunition from? Because the only two stores in Dallas that sold the ammunition, they, both the owners test, um, told the FBI that they never sold any of that ammunition to Oswald. You know, uh, the condition of the weapon, how the, the actual sale of the weapon uh, was, was in the courts at the time through, I think it was the Carlo Rivia machine shop uh, were, were, uh, were getting sued or suing this other company who had bought the weapons, who were a subsidiary of Klein's, because they said that the, the, the batch of rifles that C2766 was in were defective. They didn't work. So this is all in the commission volumes, uh, and anyone can read them. So it's just basically going through the case piece by piece and, and basically presenting it as as what it was. It was a sham. Oswald wasn't given any any defence and death. He wasn't given any in life either. Um, the Dallas police and prosecution officials uh, grossly infringed on his, his constitutional and human rights. And the lineups, the lineups were are actually disgusting when, when you read them. I mean, I think the last lineup, Oswald was put in the lineup with uh, a man of Mexican descent. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, how, how, in, how in any way, shape, or form does that constitute a fair lineup? Well, I Oswald mean, went to Mexico City, so. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they might have they might have mistaken him, you know. He might have got a good oh, tan, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's all that, and it's it's. I try to I try to lay it out as logically and as best as I can, so somebody could read this and go, yeah, this 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 really is bad. Yeah, and you know? and think of this that you've gone through the Warren Commission and you're using their own words against them, but think what they had to leave out. Just oh yeah, I mean, oh, I mean. <laughs> I uh, I went to the Ruth Payne talk in Dallas, and it was in the Irvin. It was in the kind of there's a hall in Irvin where it was held, and Mrs. Payne was I think she was only on stage for about forty five fifty minutes. She basically said right off the bat that she is not interested in talking to anybody that says there was a conspiracy to kill the president. She's not interested in talking to anyone that says that. Well, I mean the last the last official ruling on this case was there was a probable conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy. And it was just, you know, it was just all about how Oswald was this unstable guy who killed the president. And, you know, she once again said that she couldn't believe that when Oswald phoned up from the jail on Saturday to speak to Marina, and he found out Marina wasn't there, and then he asked Mrs. Payne if she would try and contact a lawyer for him, and Mrs. Payne was so taken aback that she would he would even he had the audacity to ask anything of her at that point. I kind of wanted to stand up and raise my hand and say, you know, Mrs. Payne, don't you believe in the presumption of innocence? It is a cornerstone of American justice. How did you know on November 23rd, 1963, that Lee Oswald was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? What evidence had you seen? Well, you know? I, I would have asked about, you know, wasn't there an FBI transcription that they had her phone tapped and her husband called back to the house and he says, we both know who did this, who's behind this? Yeah, well, the, the, the questions were screened. A lot of people asked a lot of questions. No, but I'm just saying, do you recall that? Because Yeah, I do, I, I do right, recall so that. So how does I her husband recall... say on the, on the afternoon, we both know who's behind this? 
right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then she goes, yeah. I mean, as you said at the start, though, Lynn, you know, it's like the the garage is the gift that keeps on giving. Not only is the whole house being turned upside down on the Friday, but it gets turned upside down on the Saturday, and even after that, there's more evidence coming out of the paint house. So, um, but yeah, it was. Uh, it was pretty, uh, well, listen, I didn't expect much. I went purely because I wanted to see one of the last living witnesses to this thing. And I brought over my volume two of my, my commission hearings. And at the end of the talk, people were lining up because she'd done the talk with a man called Thomas Mallon, who's, uh, I think he done the, he was, he, he authored the book, Mrs. Payne's Garage, okay? And they were selling all these books and people, there was, there was a few people lining up to get these books signed. And when it was my turn, I handed over my volume to the Warren Commission hearings. And she kind of looked at me like, what's this? And I told her who I was. And she was like, she was really taken aback by it. I got her to sign it because she appears in it. But yeah, it was a, it was a really, it was a really kind of, it, it was, it was what I expected it to be. I expected it to be, you know, just trying to reinforce how Oswald was this deranged communist or whatever and he killed the president but anyone that knows the case know that's that's just a fairy tale you know and the fraud of it you know i think uh when i did my little intros for 50 reasons to 50 years um i was a little bit pissed off and i I often thought about gary mack and that you know what a piece of shit he was so uh um you know i i often it it never ceases to amaze me what people will do for money i mean I have got so much respect for, for President Kennedy and I've got so much respect for, for Bobby and the Kennedy family. If anyone ever said to me, you know, come and be the come and be the head honcho at the Sixth Floor Museum, but you've got to promulgate the lie. You've got to you've got to basically say Oswald was guilty. No amount of money in the world could ever get me to uh, to do that. I've got too much respect for for the memory of President Kennedy to ever do that. You know, so. and it's like, and how can, how can they call themselves a museum? I mean, it's a total fraud. I mean, it's, I hate to say the flat earth again, but it's just like having some kind of museum of geology and say, well, some people say the earth is round, but also there's other people who say it's flat, so we've got to respect both sides. We're going to give you both points of view here. You know, it's like, what a waste of time. You don't do that. No, no, I was just going to say you're absolutely right. They don't, they, they, I, I touched on this earlier, they don't, they don't present both sides. They present Oswald was guilty and then there's like a little board that says conspiracy with a question mark. They go through all the kind of, you know, was it Castro? Was it the Soviet Union? And they go through all these different people, you know, and it's just like stuff that's just not taken seriously. But yeah, I mean... Last time when I went in 2018, they sold Accessories After the Fact. Now, to me, Accessories After the Fact is the best book ever written on this case. Uh, I think it's just how Sylvia Magar in 1967, how she delved into the minutiae of this thing and presented this book, which still holds up all these years later, is is amazing to me. And yeah, there's some stuff in there that, that wasn't right or bang on the money. But you expect that because it was written in the 1960s and we know certain things now with the release of all these kind of files through the <clears throat> through the ARRB and the HSCA, etc. But that book was getting sold there in 2018. When I went back in a few weeks ago, Accessories wasn't there. The only book on the case that I've seen that 
that advocate for conspiracy was Josiah Thompson's last seconds in Dallas. That was the only one I'd seen personally there. And they've got a big section of all these books. You know, case closed, as you said. Uh, Bugliosi isn't there, actually. Uh, you know, maybe they can't. Maybe maybe it's maybe it's been used at a doorstop somewhere. I, I don't know, but um, he's not there, which is pretty surprising. But they've got all these other authors, you know, all these other ones, you know, Oswald did it, Oswald did it. But accessories. When I was there in 2018, I was so surprised that they sold accessories. Yeah, it must track. have been. Have you read it? My mistake. Have you read it? Right, Sylvia. Right, but uh, just you know, yeah. it, it's like. That's the the biggest. Well, I started a page on Proudy.org about boycott the sixth floor museum, and I said if you've had mm. a, uh, an experience, write into me. And many many people wrote in there, and they were just totally pissed off. They thought they were swindled out of money. They thought they were going to see some exhibits, and it was just like a dog and pony show. I think at one point you could rent these little headphones and you put the headphones on and you walk around like a sheep, and they would just tell you what to think. But the, as you walk through the exhibits. Yeah. Do they yeah, still have that? It's quite funny because no, well, when I went in twenty eighteen, they tried to give me a headset and I said, Nah, I'm I'm okay, I don't need one. But when I went just there, they didn't have the headsets. Maybe they stopped it because of COVID, I don't know. But on the twenty second, on the seventeenth as well, to be fair in the morning, it was busy. On the twenty second, it was absolutely rammed, stowed out this whole museum. And they had actually ran out of tickets. They were selling no tickets for the twenty second, and it was it was so busy. And it's such a money maker, right? I mean, I think the tickets were like seventeen dollars per person, or something like that, nearly twenty dollars. And you can imagine people buying stuff at the gift shop, and oh, that'll be a multi million pound business in there. I mean, I do know that some of the critics, like Gary Shaw. They, they had the Conspiracy Museum, right? And Larry Harris, the late Larry Harris. They had the Conspiracy Museum in Dallas and it wasn't far from the Sixth Floor Museum. But I think that went bust in the 90s. I think so. But that had to be an interesting to go and visit, you know? But um, actually, when I was in Dallas, I also done a time test. I also timed the walk from 1026 up to 10th and Patton. You know what's quite interesting, Len? How uh, most of the route is uphill. No one ever really mentions that. And that was the first thing that struck me. It's like, you're almost walking uphill. So if people say, you know, yeah, Oswald ran it or whatever, you know, it's almost like, well, it was it, it was uphill. So that would have made them, that would have got them tired even quicker. And at a point I was actually going to raise, I raised to Matt Doubt it, because Matt gave us a tour of 10th and Patton. And I said to him, I was like, you know, I was like, what type of shoes was Oswald wearing when he was arrested at the Texas Theatre? And he's like, oh, I, I don't know how. And then I showed him this picture of Oswald, you know, being led out by Lavelle and Graves. And Oswald's got these dress shoes on, okay? And I said, well, how hard is it to run dress shoes, right? They hardly gave the guy, they never let the guy change his clothing on November 22nd to 23rd. So what's the likelihood that they're going to let him change his shoes? And if it's the same shoes he's wearing when he's murdered, it's these dress shoes he's wearing. Now, it's hard enough to walk in dress shoes, let alone run it. So it's just another little tidbit of, you know, it's another little thing that you can add on to the, the exculpatory evidence of Oswald that he couldn't get from Beckley to, to Patton in time to shoot Tippett. But it's out the way as well. I mean, if he's always going to the Texas theatre, why the hell is he in 10th and Patton in the first place? But it's really fascinating when you get to Dallas and you actually get to see these 
east side you get to do the the route of course you can't do the exact route because of uh, there's a school etc around around um tenth and patton now but yeah there's a have you ever seen the have you ever seen the plaque there at tenth and patton uh, you ever seen pictures yeah, of it yeah i have yeah and it's it's proclaiming this fact that oswald killed tippet yeah and it's like that that's a disgrace it should be it should be brought down it should it, it it's just not factual in the slightest i mean he never went to trial of course he was murdered so how can it state as fact that well, of course, it's it just another it. piece of the fraud, right? But then you, somebody should put another plaque. I mean, if you were to subscribe to something by John Armstrong, you could say, was this Lee Oswald or an imposter? You know? Yeah, is, the Harvey uh, right, you know? And at first glance, I think people are hesitant to, to buy into that. But at, the further you go down, you know, you, you say, well, there is somebody Im- impersonating him. And uh, there was a lookalike, and there was somebody spotted in a car behind the theater. The guy took the license number down, and then there was somebody flowing out from the um, uh, the Trinity River, got on that plane and flew out. And these people are saying, if that wasn't Lee Oswald, it was his brother. Yeah, well, Oswald was definitely impersonated. There's no question about right, it. Right. So then, impersonated at, at arm's length. Then, what person is being impersonated at 23? You know, I mean, this is just another footprint of the intelligence community. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would agree, and I think as well, it's very important to to uh, remind ourselves that Dallas was the third plot in November twenty, uh, November sixty three alone. You also had uh, Tampa, and you also had Chicago, and you know there was there was patsies in their cases. Was it Gilberto Lopez in in Tampa, and in Chicago it was a uh, Valley Thomas Arthur Valley. So. You know, I've got the chicagoplot.com and I have the article and um, I think the Chicago one episode that we have there. Really, if you haven't heard about that, you should really investigate just quickly what happened in Chicago, an assassination plot that it mirrors Dallas to like a movie. You go, wait a minute, right? That That's such a, a similarity. This can't be by accident. And you think, well, they tried in Los Angeles, they tried in uh, Miami or Tampa or then Chicago. Then finally they brought in some big hitters and they said, we're running out of time. We got to get this done. You know, it's quite interesting. I'm, I'm listening to um, a book on John F. Kennedy at the minute called Johnny We Hardly Knew Ye. And it was written by Ken O'Donnell and Dave Powers, who, who were very close to President Kennedy and goes through his life. It goes through, you know, when, when, he, when he starts his... As um, <clears throat> he's working in the Senate, then he's then he's then he's uh, sorry, he's working in the Congress and the Senate, and then he goes up to be president. And the man was a the man was such a hard worker, you know. He was like he would he would go to his bed at two and he'd, he'd be up at again at five or six o'clock to shake hands with dock workers going into the work in the early hours of the morning, and you know. And it's it's quite funny the the stories they tell about him. And, there was an assassination attempt on Kennedy before he he, he had he was president elect, and he was down in Florida, I think it was, and apparently this guy uh, was was waiting outside of his Palm Beach home, and he was going to crash into his car when he was going to mass in the morning, and it was going to be full of dynamite or whatever, and the, apparently the thing that stopped this guy was the fact that Jackie Kennedy and Caroline came to the door with, with President Kennedy and he didn't want to do it because they were there. Anyway, the guy got caught by the Secret Service later on 
and apparently when JFK found out about it, he was utterly fascinated by it. Um, he wanted to know why the guy was going to do it, the ins and outs of it, you know. And the first thing that struck me was, I wonder if the assassination attempt had had failed in Dallas. I wonder if he would have been as fascinated, you know. Walt Brown told me one time he went, um, you know, it had to be successful in Dallas because if it failed and the president got out of Dallas alive, Bobby Kennedy's Justice Department would have been all over this plot and they would have found out who 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 was behind it. It had to be successful. And again, that's something that's always stuck with me as well. Walt, Walt's a fantastic researcher. Um, if you've if you've not got his uh, JFK chronology, then it's a must-have. It's it's a masterpiece. It's everything in there. Yeah, it's overwhelming. And, I don't uh, think I've gone through everything. It's just overwhelming. I mean, I mean, imagine writing it. It must have been. It, I mean, I thought I thought my articles uh, really took a lot out of me, and but Walt. That was that must have taken him taken him years to write that decades. Yeah, it's a magnus opus. It's 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 such good work. But you know, I'm starting to to read really a lot more into President Kennedy himself. And uh, I mean, I've read I've read all sorts of books on him. I've read uh, this Arthur Schlesinger's book, Todd Ted Sorison's book, and I actually just watched The Fog of War with McNamara. I'd seen it years ago. And I had li- I've literally just watched it again. That's an interesting watch. You ever seen the Fog of War? Oh yeah, yeah. The and the second time you get to you know it's coming, so you get to watch his body language in that. One of the memorable scenes to me is when the the interviewer is is pushing him on something, and he he says back to him, "Look, I know things," you know, and then yeah. he, he just leaves it there. He's saying, yeah. "Like, I know more than I can tell on camera, and there's some things I can never I can never reveal, and you know." I'm not as dumb as you think, but I have to play dumb on some of these questions. Yeah, well, you know, it's quite fascinating because McNamara talks about Kennedy in Vietnam. I read the book Virtual JFK, which is about, it's, it's, a, it's a great book. Basically, it's all these historians around the table, like Kenneth Galbraith's son and um, Loganville, Fred Loganville's there and all these other historians. And they just debate Kennedy on Vietnam and the what if question. And McNamara says that Kennedy would never have done in Vietnam what Johnson did. And in Johnny We Hardly Knew You, Ken O'Donnell says that just before Dallas, Kennedy had said to him, I am going to be in in, in, 1960, in, in the second term, 1965, he's going to be one of the most unpopular presidents of, of all time. But he doesn't care. And it's regarding Vietnam, pulling out of Vietnam. And he talks about the implications of what a war in Vietnam would be. And he says to, to Kenny O'Donnell, so we damn well better make sure that I am re-elected. And he talks about the withdrawal of the troops or the advisors. And he says, that means all the helicopter pilots too. He says that was one of the last, that was one of the things he said to him as he was walking out the door, uh, Ken O'Donnell. Of course, O'Donnell and Powers were in Dallas when it happened and they were witnesses to, to, to uh, gun sh- gunfire for the knoll or shot for the front. But it's just eight personal stories about President Kennedy and, you know, Ted Sorensen even saying Kennedy would never have, have went into Vietnam. Uh, he had all these opportunities to do it, all these fact-finding um, missions, and he was urged every time, you know, bomb the Ho Chi Minh Trail, put in all these ground troops, 
and he'd never done it once. And um, it was because him and his brother had went there in the 1950s. And, you know, during his presidency, Vietnam wasn't such a big thing. And maybe 61, 62, it was Berlin and the crisis there. And then obviously Vietnam became more of a thing uh, during the end of his of his life. And of course, you've got the sign in the end, Sam 263. But um, he would never have sent ground troops into Vietnam because he knew it was a disaster. And it's it's just so interesting, all that, all the stories about, you know, of his presidency and people say, oh, yeah, well, he told Walter Cronkite that he thinks it was his mistake to withdraw. But I think people have got to realise that if he had came out during his first term and says, we are withdrawn from Vietnam, people would have, would have called him a communist appeaser. There would have been all sorts of ridiculous charges made against him. So he had to make sure he was being re-elected. And, you know, people say, well, he he um, he made the war in Vietnam worse. You know, he escalated it with all these advisors. But I think as well, you've got to understand that he had the choice of either withdrawing completely or sending these ground troops. And he didn't want to send in these, these ground troops into Vietnam. So I think, in my opinion, as a compromise, he sent in these advisors because he couldn't be seen to be to be letting Vietnam go to the communists because, of course, he's a politician and he wants to be re-elected, but there is no way in hell that he's going to be sending in American ground troops. So what does he do? He compromises and sends in, sends in advisors. And I'm pretty confident from everything I've read and watched that there would have been no Vietnam War had had Kennedy lived. I think he would have. I think Vietnam would have went the way of Laos. It had been because uh, Laos was um, was a uh, neutral, and I think Vietnam would have went that way. It would have been hard. It would have been difficult for him to do it because of the political landscape at the time. But he would have found a way. He would have found a way to do it. And John, of course, Johnson. Uh, you all know what happens when Johnson takes takes over. The reversally two six three with two seven three, yeah. but then and the, a golf at talking instant complete failure of this, and you know Johnson wanted the Great Society, or is that what it was called? But but regardless, um, I'm just making the point that when he realized he couldn't stop the war, he dropped out. I mean, he didn't run again, and you would think that's inconceivable that all his life he was working to becoming the president, and he got there, and he says, if I turn against the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they're going to kill me like they killed Kennedy. You know, he saw the writing on the wall. You know, it's quite, yeah. Do you know what's quite, you know quite sad? In the, in the book, Ken O'Donnell talks about they, they, go, they get to Parkland. The president's obviously in, slumped over in Jackie's lap, and Johnson gets carted into the, taken into Parkland, and apparently Ken O'Donnell talks about he didn't have the courage to go to the car because I think they knew he was dead. And But Dave Powers did. They went to the car and apparently um, he was he, he was in Jackie's lap and I think it was Clint Hill's coat. They took Clint Hill's coat and wrapped it around his head so no one could see the, the damage. And anyway, presence in there, he's pronounced dead. And apparently O'Donnell said to, to LBJ, you know, because LBJ didn't arrive in Air Force One, he arrived in Air Force Two. And he said to LBJ, he said, uh, listen, you best go back to, to, to Washington. We don't know how long we're going to be here for, etc. And 
you're just better back in Washington. We don't know if there's a plot against you. They just didn't know, okay? And so Johnson leaves, apparently. And then, of course, there's the whole stramash with the Secret Service and, and, and um, Dr. Earl Rose at Parkland. And then they, they obviously leave and they, they get to Air Force One. And apparently Jackie Kennedy turns around and says to, to Ken O'Donnell when they're on Air Force One, I'm just going to go and, and, and try and wash up and, and all this because she was covered in blood. And apparently when she walks through the door into the room where there was the presidential room where, where JFK and all their stuff was, she found Johnson lying on her lying on the bed, like dictating telegrams, etc. And she was like so taken aback by it. And I just and and I just felt like why in the world would Johnson ever think to do that? You know? Like how would you have the audacity to the president of the United States has just been shot and killed and that he's in his private quarter he's in Jack Kennedy's private quarters lying on his bed, you know? It's just how like how unfeeling, you know, how selfish is that? And uh, of course, he drags Jackie up for the the oath of office, which he didn't have to take. He didn't have to take the oath of office because when the president dies, the vice president automatically assumes the presidency. And he told Ken O'Donnell that um, Bobby wants me to do it, but Bobby never, never. Bobby didn't like Johnson anyway. But uh, it was all a pretense. It was all a kind of show of I'm the president now. It was. Oh yeah. yeah. It's just a really sad scene. And similar, when they got back to Washington, I, I understand when he walked in, he said the first thing he said is, get that rocking chair out of here. Or JFK had a, a I mean, rocking chair there. Do you remember that? It was for his back, yeah. I've seen footage of it. It's on, the footage of it is on YouTube. And you can see the, the rocking chair on the 23rd being taken out of the Oval Office and moved into storage. And I think Evelyn Lincoln talks about that. But regardless, just at arm's length, yeah, they weren't friends. I mean, LBJ, and, uh, if you think that that between Hoover and Dulles and the rest of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, people pissed off about the Bay of Pigs, right? Um, you know, Ed mm-hmm. Lansdale and, and all those guys, they, they were just happy that guy was gone and our guy is in now, right? So Johnson isn't yeah. kind of, you know, fumbling around like a mouse. He says, okay. Now we're getting back on track. We're going into Vietnam, right? We're doing this, we're doing that. You know, you want your war, just keep me elected and you got it, right? Well, Johnson also didn't believe the Warren Commission. <laughs> he didn't believe the single bullet theory. Uh, I talk about that in the article as well. Uh, the, the Richard Russell and Johnson, you can listen to it on YouTube. There's a private conversation and they're talking about the Warren Commission and they're talking about the single bullet theory. And Russell says to him, uh, they want to prove that the same bullet they got, Kennedy got Connolly. Well, I don't believe it. And Johnson says, yeah, I don't believe it either. So Lyndon Johnson didn't believe the sine qua non of the Warren Commission report, which is the single bullet. That's them flexing their muscle. They're saying, yeah, I don't believe it. But what are they going to do about it? First of all, we're going to have the Warren Commission cover up this and then we're not going to release anything for 75 years what more of a joke do you have to have you know rubbed in your nose we're not going to release anything for 75 years i think one of the the motivators for bobby to run 1968 yeah was vietnam vietnam was massive in 68 
in the 60s. But it was also he understood that only with the power of the presidency could he get to the bottom of what happened to his brother in, in Dallas in, in 63. And I, I, I know that when Bobby, Bobby was very torn about running, members of his family, some wanted him to run, some didn't. And I think, I think he did tell people in the run-up to the ambassador that you need the power of the presidency to figure out what happened in Dallas. And that was, that was a motivation to run, run for sure. Bobby was haunted by his brother's death. And I think he would have been a fantastic president. I just, it's again, I spoke to Paul Schrade about this. Paul Schrade is no longer with us. God rest his soul. And I spoke to him a few years ago about Bobby and, one of the last emails I had with him was, you know, what was your thoughts about after it all happened? And he just wrote back to me saying, we lost the game. And that, that sums up perfectly for me. The Kennedys are such a, are such a massive loss, as is Dr. King and, and Malcolm X. And it, it just, you know, it's the old cliche, but the world would have been a better place with these people in it. And... Um, even like another watershed moment in 1980, John Lennon being killed, you know? And it's just like, there's there's people, there's figures in this world that advocate for, for peace and they want fair, they want equality and, and these, these people end up dying. And, you know, it's, that, that's, that, that's, 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 that's a, that's a tragedy, you know, that's, it's it's the biggest what if in history. What 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 would JFK's second term have been? No Vietnam. I mean, he talked about a joint mission to the moon with the Soviets, and I just don't think the American uh, certain elements in the American uh, government would have stood for that. Because all they know is a, a industrialized military complex, like Eisenhower warned of. You know, he's trying to warn people of. It's still happening today, right? You know, there's just endless money. America's bankrupted. They got money for a war. They're funding Ukraine. They're funding in Israel. And there's just war, war, war. But their their cities are falling apart from within. I mean, you talk about uh, the trouble in East Palestine, where that was a giant uh, toxic train wreck, or in Maui and the city of Lahaina, they just burned to the ground. And they offered they offered everyone seven hundred dollars each if you lost your home. Do you recall? I'm just it's 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 unbelievable. So. I don't want to get into that part of it, but yeah, Kennedy, you mentioned, he did more than talk about it. There's NSAM 271, which is uh, talking about ending the space race and going jointly. I didn't I didn't actually know about NSAM 271. I'll, I'll definitely take a look at that. I know he done a speech, I think, in the UN, where he, where he definitely talks about the... the calling the moon, calling the space race off or the, the joint, the venture to the moon off and actually having a joint one. And um, so that stuff like that is really interesting to me. I mean, well, it's what interesting about the, it is that you know, not only does he have the Cubans, you know, that, that are furious at him for failing, and the, the the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the CIA wanted to, you know, perpetrate this fraud on him, where they would send in like fourteen hundred men and it would fail, and the Navy was just offshore, uh, you know, quote conducting maneuvers. They would have to call them in, and they would have taken over Cuba. But he didn't go for that. He just said that would kill a lot of Cubans. So, but with the, I'll send you NSAM 271, where um, he says, get ready, we're going to go jointly. Well, Dornberger and Werner von Braun and that these guys in the German rocketry program, they hated the Soviets. They did not want to share their technology with them. 
And um, now they're saying you have to, we're going joint to the, you know, we're going to go with them. And it somewhat worked yeah. its way out where we have the International Space Station and they've made, you know, parts that fit both. So, you know, a Russian ship can go up there or any other country and American. So, uh, you know, they have docking ports that will fit and, uh, you know, they're shared some technology. So there is an International Space Station now and uh, there was other plans, but that all got scrapped. You know, so many things got scrapped and pulling out of Vietnam, like Kennedy had written in, in 263, we're pulling out. Not only I want a thousand troops a month. And like you say, and that includes the helicopter pilots, you know, I want everybody out. Yeah. You know, I think, I think I, I, I honestly, in this, in a JFK second term, and like Mr. X, you know, says in JFK, talk about ending the cold war second term. I mean, this guy, this man, at the time, he would have been ferociously attacked. But when he's in his second, in his second term, he's not up for re-election. So he, he can really get to work on the problems that really faced him. And, and stuff that he really wanted to do. I mean, listen, the limited test ban treaty, that was monumental. Because there was such opposition to the test ban treaty. And he got it through, he got it passed. And it was it was something that, you know, again, it was all about, you know, trying to limit these nuclear weapons. They were in such an age, him and Khrushchev, you know, during the crisis, they they were, a, they, both of them were equally, they were both equally abhorrent. Um, it was so abhorrent to them that they came so close to nuclear war. And obviously, then you have the thought, and then you obviously have the knock-on effect to that is the the speech in June in nineteen sixty-three at American University, and it was it, it's such a such a landmark speech and a fantastic speech, you know. And I think after that, I think after that, there was probably no going back for for the for the people that that planned this this assassination that was probably the last straw you know was 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 the speech in june of 1963 you know it's the only time apparently that the speech got more critical acclaim in the soviet union than it did in the united states and it was it's a it's a great speech you know and i think that well one of my favorite speeches of all time is uh, have you ever heard robert kennedy's mindless menace of violence speech I actually end uh, my article, the last part of my article, I, I end on that speech. I, I public, and I'm glad Jim did it. So I've got to thank him for that. He, the whole speech is there at the end of my articles, and it's kind of like, you know, it's it, and to me it encapsulates the loss of the 1960s, and and obviously for the last great hope of the 1960s, which was Robert Kennedy. And it's such a fantastic speech, you know, he says, a sniper is only a coward, not a hero, you know, and he talks about, he talks about Abraham Lincoln and he, and he talks about, you know, why do we destroy each other? Why do we as human beings tear at the fabric of our lives when, when someone kills another human being, you know, you're killing a father or you're killing a brother or you're killing, you know, someone's husband or boyfriend or sister or, you know. It's such a hum. It's such a. It's such a great speech, and it just sees. It, it. It just. It just. 
it's just such a humanitarian speech and it's fantastic. You really got to check it out. You know, I have a lot of respect for Robert Kennedy. I have a lot of respect for him. And that's why I made the the trip to Arlington. You know, I was only supposed to be in Dallas for a week. And I thought to myself, I cannot go to the United States and not go to Arlington and pay my respects to President Kennedy and, and Robert Kennedy. And that's what I did. Um, I flew to Washington. Beautiful. I love Washington. Washington's a fantastic city. It's, it's just oozing with history. It's, it's fantastic. Although at the time, they are actually working on the Lincoln Memorial at the minute. So they've got all this scaffolding all around it. But you can still go up and access it. And that was all lit up. And I got to Arlington and the sun was just setting and the eternal flame is there in the background. And, you know, it, it just uh, you just sit there and you, sorry, you stand there and in in that moment looking at the eternal flame and it really hits you just that we, us, all these researchers, you know, we need to carry forward President Kennedy's legacy. You know, torch is now passed to us to keep it going. And we've always got to strive and seek out the answers as to why he was killed. And it still matters today, 60 years later. So it was such a, a touch. It was such a personal moment for me. I'd been in 2018 and to go back again. And obviously Bobby's buried not far from his brother. And so is Ted Kennedy. Teddy Kennedy's not buried far, 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 that far from Bobby either. But Arlington's a beautiful cemetery. If you've never been, definitely you should go in because it's just like a sea of white tombstones, you know? And each one of these tombstones represents a sacrifice, you know, of people fighting against, you know, oppression. And it's just, it's it's such a beauty, it's such haunting grounds. And then I, I, I actually seen the grave of Medgar Evers when I was there as well. And he was apparently killed. He was assassinated, I think it was the day after Kennedy, Jack Kennedy had his speech on civil rights. Um, he was killed in, in the South. But he's buried at Arlington. And a lot of people are buried at Arlington. Like Mac the Mara's buried there. I never got to see his grave. Uh, Lonestein, he's buried there as well. He's not buried all that far, actually, from, from President Kennedy. But if you've never been to Arlington, you should definitely you should definitely go. It's it's beautiful actually when you see the the Lee House on the hill, and then you obviously you see the the eternal flame there as well. And uh, yeah, it's really it's really sad. You really contemplate just what a loss this this man was. Yeah, I have been there. I was. Uh, it's a sad time though. I was invited uh, by the family and uh, for the ceremony when Fletcher Prouty was. He's buried there, and the Air Force ah. gave him a, a, a funeral there with a 21-gun salute and the, the caisson, and it's uh, it's quite uh, staggering. I and mean, like you say, when you walk around, you see the people who've uh, given their lives for the idea of the United States. And, um, yeah, then you go to the Eternal Flame, and you go to Bobby Kennedy, the, the one cross in, in yeah. the whole thing. There was so much. There were so many flowers. There was so many flowers around both brothers' graves and Teddy as well. There was flowers around his, and you know Robert Kennedy said that best when he says, "We love our country, but we love our country for what it can be, for the justice that it stands for." 
you know. And um, the Kennedy, the, the Kennedys, they, they encapsulate these men encapsulated the best of America, and they were killed by the worst of America. So, but yes, yeah, it's, it's really sad. It's 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 really tragic, and all we can do is keep moving forward and 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 seek answers to the questions that still haunt these cases. You know, whether it be President Kennedy's. Or Malcolm X, or Martin Luther King, or Bobby Kennedy. You know, there's still questions out there, and there's still answers to be see- to be seeked. Well, it kind of it's the and education we just keep asking them. To, to let you know that that people have done something like this and they've got away with it. So unless you really understand what happened, uh, you've got to get that under control so you can keep it from happening again in the future. To recognize this, right? So. Yeah, yeah, it is, and it's, um, yeah, exactly. I think Fletcher Prouty actually said that in The Man Who Killed Kennedy. You know, he says, um, what was it, Cyril Wecht? I can't remember. He says, um, if, no, it was Cyril Wecht. He says, if it can be done to John F. Kennedy in 1963, you know, it can be done to another president, you know, in the future or, or now, or, you know. I still like The Man Who Killed Kennedy. I think it's, uh, it's some of the information's outdated, of course, but I, I like watching it. Well, it was, uh, it's on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing for you on YouTube. Yeah, I still like it. 1988. But it was groundbreaking. That's right. You think that, that, you know, it took a British uh, uh, ITV or whatever, whoever produced it, right, uh, Nigel Turner, that, that, you know, they finally got that. You think America would be all over it, right? But no, all they are is funding the Sixth Floor Museum and keep the myth going, keep the lie. Don't let people know what we're up to. Or I think it's George. Do you think? Uh, do you think Robert Kennedy Jr. Do you think he he's got a chance for the presidency? He was so intelligent, but you know, I, I don't know what to think. You know, I find it unfortunate the stance people have right now about Israel and Gaza. That no matter you 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 have to sit down with somebody and say, "I'm ready for an eight-hour talk. Let's talk about from 1947 on what the hell's going on there," and just have that talk. But today, today, where they're just indiscriminately bombing, people are saying that's not genocide. Of course it is. It's genocide. Now you go, well, they deserved it. Whatever. Okay, you can have that debate. But when it just bothers me that people are so, then you have to discuss: is this are you against the government of Israel? Is it Zionism? Is it and there's a whole talk and you oh you're anti-Jewish, you're anti-Semitic. It's hard to even talk about that. So I think that's the number one thing that he there's opposition going to be opposition to him. And of course, a lot of people are without even knowing the history of everything there. They're just saying I can see children and babies dying every day by the thousands. You know, so I mean, you've got to recognize. That something's wrong there and no one's strong. And then if you look into it further, you go, there's natural gas and oil reserves discovered under there. They want to wipe everybody out of there to get at that, you know? And then you then you, you I, shake your head at humanity. You go, what the hell? You know, I, I um, when I when I think of the conflict in, in, in the Middle East at the, at the moment, and it's, it's heartbreaking. And it reminds me of the speech that Martin Luther King, his first major speech on Vietnam, and he talks about how he can no longer be silent on it because he he has this duty, you know, to it's intrinsically linked. The conflict in Vietnam is linked to the civil rights struggle. And it's a fantastic, uh, absolutely fantastic speech. 
and I think it was 1967. And I know when you go into Kennedy's and King, sometimes, you know, there's pictures of it'll either be Kennedy or Bobby or, you know, or Martin Luther King or whatever. And the excerpt that's taken it for King is from that speech. And it's, it's, it's just brilliant. You know, it always reminds me of the conflict now because a war should be abhorrent to any single human being. Because, you know, just by the grace of God, you were born in Canada. By the grace of God, I was born in, in Scotland, you know. I could have easily been born in Palestine or, you know, and the bombs could be falling over my head. And, and why do we do this to each other? You know, why do we have this innate desire to destroy each other? I, I just don't understand it. And, you know, it's in the, in the 1970s, John Lennon put these billboards all around New York, you know. War is over if you want it. Yeah. You know, imagine, just put that in, in, into your, your point of view, you know. It could be over. What would have to happen? What would there have to happen? I mean, I mean, since 1947, I guess there's been trouble, trouble in the Middle East. The Middle East has always been known for that, so it depends on, on how far you want to study and, and who's at fault and who's provoking, and then there's the reaction. And like Elon Musk said, for he was talking in Israel that uh, for every child that you kill there, you're, you're creating more Hamas. Like, you're not going to win doing this unless you exterminate everyone. It's heartbreaking that, again, President Kennedy said our problems are man-made, therefore they can't be solved by man. And you, you need discussion. You need you need discussion, and it goes for any conflict. Well, that's what happened for Martin King, is that William Pepper went there as a photojournalist, and he took pictures of all the children with missing limbs and dying, and Martin King saw that article in Ramparts with all these pictures of children and then that, that that put it you know he changed his mind you know he said i i cannot remain silent anymore i have to and then he speaks up against the war machine removed same with bobby kennedy i mean when you watch that movie for who died trying that's the the common thread there was the vietnam war going and if you were against that you end up dead and I, I know after that speech um people said martin dr king went too far they really turned against him and you know but he's asking us to examine our own conscience dr king was a was a baptist minister and he was saying how can i say that i follow the teachings of jesus christ and stay silent on what is happening in the world you know and he says eh, the good news was meant for all men and eh, i'm religious i'm i'm a i'm a roman catholic and it's uh, you, you sometimes you do you have to think to yourself you know how how would how does the teachings of Christ would 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 this you know what we're doing to each other you know is this what he died for you know and um, yeah it's, you've really got to examine your own conscience and and yeah and I think that's one of the the driving factors of of the Kennedy case for me because I hold the Kennedys in such high esteem. Uh, and I've got such reverence for, for John and Robert Kennedy. Yeah, well, I think that they earned it, you know? I mean, if you have respect for them, it, it was because you've examined uh, more than, than uh, the average person, and you come away with that respect, that you go, wow, if uh, I should, you know, investigate or follow, or like you said, keep the torch going, here's someone who is really an example of what we should be doing to make this world a better place. Absolutely. And if it wasn't for President Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis, then we wouldn't be having this conversation today because he stood against all of that 
all of that talk of war, talk of let's let's send that's preemptive strike in Cuba and the Soviet Union. He stood against that, and uh, Robert Kennedy said during in his book Thirteen Days that what bothered him most was the deaths of the children of the world. You know, people that had no role, who had no say, who knew nothing about the conflict that was happening, who would never be able to vote an election, would never grow up, and uh, that's what bothered him the most. You know, what politician now has that empathy, has that has that humanitarian, you know? streak in them I don't think there's many that's what makes John and Robert Kennedy in my opinion so unique okay well we have been talking to Johnny Cairns JFK at 60 60 reasons and they're split into six sections and uh, I hadn't gone through all of the the, the six floor evidence part six of six but uh, I know the topic so well I don't feel bad talking to you about this without sorry without reading the final ones but uh, like you said what there's a, it's a quite lengthy so it's good that they're split up yeah i mean yeah it's 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 really uh it, it's, it's really i mean people have said to me you know oh you could have put it as a book or or whatever i'm not interested in that i'm just really happy that and humbled that they're on kennedy's and king and they're they're free and accessible for for people you know and that to me is the most important thing i co-authored a book on this case called uh, case not closed i've done other articles on the case uh, presumption of Innocence, Lee Harvey Oswald, they're on Kennedy and King also. So I'm just glad that my work is there for people to to reference, to, to if they've got any questions, they can always reach out to me through Kennedy's and King or um, or Dealey Plaza UK. I'm happy to answer any questions on right. this. Do you have your own website or for your email? No, I just, I just do everything through Kennedy's and King. So if anyone wants to ask me any questions whatsoever... Then, if they get in touch with, with Jim at Kennedy's and King, he can forward anything on to me, I'm sure. Okay, very good. Well, I think we're kind of getting close to wrapping up. Before we do that, I offer you a chance to just bring up anything I didn't get to, if I forgot, or is there something important that you'd like to have an addendum with here? Just was there anything we didn't get to? No, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> I think I um, I think the article speaks for itself. You know, I yeah, think very if good, yeah. um. Yeah, and I think if you if you go in and, and read it, and um, it might be a might be a bit long, but it's uh, it's well worth it. And I think it's 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 worthwhile. It's a worthwhile thing to pursue. So um, if anyone's got any questions, please don't hesitate to ask. But thanks for having me on, Len. I really appreciate. I always appreciate my time on Black Op Radio. It's one of the it's one of the good ones. It's one of the very best, actually. I always enjoy listening, and I think the guests that you guys have on are really interesting. So thanks for having me on. You're very welcome, and thanks for your good work and contribution. And I think people like long articles. I don't like the quick, short ones where they just say, here's a quick blurb of this, right? Or in the instance with with my 50 reasons, it was for short attention span. I thought, look, it, for people who don't know anything, let's just give them three to five minutes of each topic. But now that people are, if you're at Kennedy's and King, you're you're a, you know a researcher, someone with a genuine interest, not someone new to the to the case, really. And Jim and and Jim DiEugenio is one of the one of the best, you know. He he really his works outstanding. I mean, Destiny Betrayed, the book, and also the documentary, the Oliver Stone documentary is fantastic, and 
Um, I really, I've got a really appreciative to Jim. Uh, he's one of the people in this research community that I look up to. Uh, I think he's, I think he's a fantastic guy. So, uh, who does fantastic work. So I'm really appreciative to him. Okay, very good. Well, with that, then we'll end the interview and. Uh, thanks so much, and we'll keep in touch. And keep me in the loop. Email me anytime you have anything new. And I'll be glad to help promote it. Thanks, Len. I really appreciate that. Thank okay. you. Good night, Johnny. Good night. Good night.